Uh, I love that question of just what are we multiplying? Because at the end of the day, if we are if we are engaged in multiplication, if we're reproducing churches, but they are not churches that share the culture of the kingdom of God, if they're not goodness culture communities, then are we really multiplying the kingdom of God? Like, or is this just a great entity with a great kind of scaling business plan? I think we have to be ruthlessly honest about what we are multiplying. Welcome to the Future Church Podcast with Anthony Delaney. If this podcast helps you, forward it to others, give us a review and subscribe today. For additional thoughts and resources, visit anthonydelaney.com. Welcome to the Future Church Podcast with me, Anthony Delaney. Uh, We just want to help leaders to be able to... um, wherever you are wherever god has placed you to know that he's with you and he's for you and to help us to be able to look back at the past and yeah there's lessons to learn that have been hard for us to learn look around at where we are in the present and get a good assessment know what's working and what's not working and then to be able to look forward and we always look forward with faith and expectancy to the future of the church because i was just reading um, the, the other day in hebrews and in the message version there's this amazing line that says that uh, the world is not tan- the church is not you know the world is not tangent the church is not tangential to the world but the, the world is tangential to the church and this idea that everything that we're doing as the church is is part of god's amazing cosmic plan so while we do think about our local churches we do think about uh, leadership and how we do that well. We also, I just want to stand in awe for a minute at the, f- at the beginning of this time and say, you know, whoever you are, wherever you're listening to this, you're part of an amazing, huge adventure that God has got going on in the world right now. And you're called for a, a purpose and uh, he's got his plans and he's not done with you yet. And maybe that's one of the reasons why you've connected to this podcast. We have all kinds of great guests who come on and help us keep it real, but at the same time bring encouragement. So check back through the previous ones. And if this is helping you, then uh, we're not sponsored by anybody and we don't get to um, you know, d- do anything like that. We, but really, you can pay us back by subscribing, by liking it, by telling other people if you've been helped by the Future Church podcast. So... My uh, guest today is uh, Kerry Ladder. I've just said it wrong. I know I've said it wrong. L- L- She's going to say it right, and then I'm not going to get it wrong again. <laughs> and uh, and so and 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 Kerry, uh, I've just got to know a little bit recently. We shared uh, on a new thing. Uh, leaders call with leaders from many other nations a little while ago and she just blew me away with lots of stuff that she was talking about to do with culture on there um and and i've I've read various things that she's done and we've connected and had some conversations ahead of launch later in the in the year um but she is the pastor of community church um community christian church in naperville which i've visited the big yellow box uh founder of new ground network and um i'm just so excited to be able to spend this time with kerry ladassa wonderfully done that was excellent thanks anthony it's so good to be with you here 
Thank you. Tell me about the name. It sounds sort of French or something, is it? Yeah, it is French-Canadian. My maiden name was Farmer, which is a lot easier (laughs) to pronounce and spell. But here, you know, probably a couple of weeks into my new role several years ago here at Community, someone came up to me and said, yeah, I told my friends that uh, I had a meeting with Pastor Ludacris. And so (laughs) that has stuck now as my nickname. Uh, I'm not going to rap for you, but Pastor Ludacris is, is what they call me for fun here. Well, that helps you to be down with the kids in every kind of way. So that's totally. all good. Totally. Yeah, fantastic. So um, just tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself. And, you know, uh, actually, let's go straight into some ministry stuff before we go into personal things, etc. But, you know, what, what, what are you seeing happening right now, straight off? What do you think God is doing where you are and around you? And, and as I said, we've just been on some global calls together. What's God doing now? And, uh, and, you know, what can you sort of see the glimpses around the corner? What, what do you think is coming that we need mm-hmm. to be getting ready for? Yeah. I mean, right now, it definitely feels like these last couple of years have been like a shaking for us in the church. Um, when I've talked about this with leaders, you know, I don't, I don't perceive that anything that has been revealed to us in the last few years with fractures in the church or even areas we need redefinition, I don't think any of that's new. Uh, I think this pandemic season has just freshly illuminated what has been there under the surface all along. And so it can be tempting to want to look away or like, we're just going to get back to the old days or we're going to, you know, rebuild what once was. And I think um, we need to take a, a deeper look at some of what has been revealed in these last few years. And, you know, I think the the redemptive potential of the gospel has never been greater than in this moment, but that's going to require us to do a good amount of kind of redefining what that means, at, at least here in the West. You know, we have certainly elevated the idea of salvation over like full gospel participation. And so I think for us, and I've said this a lot, this last couple of years has revealed the fruits of our discipleship when it comes to how we have you know really discipled people to Jesus in the last, you know, 20, 30, 40, hundreds of years here. And so I think there's a real invitation for us to reimagine what that invitation is to follow Jesus, but we've got a lot of repair work to do to build. We've eroded trust. We've, you know, eroded any sense of spiritual authority that we've had. There's a, a long, a long road ahead of us to rebuild, but I don't think we're going to go back to rebuilding what once was. I think wise leaders are attentive to what has been revealed these last few years and are reimagining kind of what the intention of of the church even is yeah and you're finding that's happening i can I, I feel it's a bit of a mixed bag i think i can still see something of a longing in leaders to just go back and also ultimately uh, there's a kind of pressure sometimes from the people mm. that you know a st- oh, it feels more stable in some way to go to go back yeah, uh, I, I think most conversations people are recognizing, uh, you know, there's a lot to learn from what has been revealed. And and I think they're beginning to come to grips with the idea that we're not going to go back. Some people are never going to let go of that. Um, I think there's lots of ways, even that we have defined success for the church, right? That that's what people want to move towards was whatever they consider the good old days. But here's the deal. I think the gospel 
invites transformation. And I think we love, you know, transformation and, and change. Those things sound really cool, but it's a really painful process, right? To transform, to let go of the old, to move towards the new. Um, the, the Apostle Paul talks about, you know, renewing our minds for the transformation of our lives. Like we have work to do to even understand the paradigms that have shaped our present reality and be able to transform those to a more kingdom-oriented, gospel-centric way of both living in this world and ushering in the kingdom of God. And so I just think people who want to go back to the way things were are no longer leading, you know, and that's okay. Some people will stay in that place. Um, It's going to take a lot of early adopters to create a new future, and hopefully that will bring other people along into a new future for the church. Okay, so discipleship you mentioned there we've done over the years here at ivy i mean not compared with america but we've done big you know big crowds for uk um it's hard you know you're in a a, you're leading a church which is meeting in a building called the big yellow box and it's big and it's and it's it's great i mean i went before the new auditorium was opened um it was when i visited and you could see the size of the thing obviously you've got all those people coming in how do we disciple crowds is that even possible what are you seeing that works for that and what are the ways to be able to get people you know my life verses mark 8 34 jesus said he called the crowd to him together with his disciples and said whoever wants to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me so he doesn't he does he does speak to the crowds but he's calling out disciples mm-hmm. um how do how do you do that well? What what, what you seeing that's kind of works to be able to do that? So we're not just putting on the best show every Sunday and, and those kind of things. Yeah, well, and you even imagine what putting on the best show every day teaches people about what church is about, right? Like there's a lot of reorientation that has to happen there. Um, we're shifting really what we're focusing on. You know, as a church right now, we we will continue to do a Sunday morning gathering as far as I can tell, although I don't think that's off the table to even explore. Um, We've got some micro church activity happening where people are able to create those types of communal church spaces where they live or work or play. And we're equipping leaders to be able to do that. We also just came out of a, um, just a really intentional kind of vision planning, strategic planning season here. And we kept circling back to we're clear on the kinds of evidence of the gospel, the kinds of fruit that we're hoping to see in the lives of people and in our kind of church body and because of that in our community and in our world. And so we really kind of shifted the game and said, well, then instead of focusing on like, here's our big church vision that we want you to get in line and get on board with and help us build, we really kind of turned the table and said, we want to come alongside people and help them figure out what their kind of discipleship path or discipleship plan looks like. And that's where we're going to put our energies as a staff and as leaders. And so uh, we're getting ready to launch this kind of internally. And I'm already doing this just with my staff team of asking them, what does discipleship look like for you? You know, we're, we're imagining this for people in the seats and um, and we want to we want to walk with people and help them really establish what are the areas they need to grow in their connection with God, with the church, with the world? You know, what are the tools and resources we can provide as a church to help people on their journey? But ultimately, 
we're putting spiritual growth, you know, back in the hands of, of people and saying, we want to walk alongside of them and help them with that. So, you know, I, I think there's spaces or programs that discipleship can happen in things like alpha that we utilize and stuff like that. But we're really, this is going to be our common shared language is how are you growing? What's your kind of journey to the life, the flourishing life that Jesus came to offer us and what's the transformation needed to seize that. So good. So good. So you're talking now, I mean, a couple of things picking out of that. I suppose what I hear is that rather than being that the, you know, just to cr- in, in engaging with the crowd, it's not being, I heard somebody say, you're not being the sage on the stage, but the guide by the side. Mm. And I think that's a shift that, that we kind of starting to make in some ways. And that's, that's where the, the discipleship thing comes from. And again, that's hard for somebody like myself because I love preaching. And I, you know, I, I work hard on a talk. I want to knock it out of the park and all those kind of things. And yet then we're having conversations with people. It's like, well, how do we, how, how, how else do we do this? I think there's the, you know, we've got to keep the both and here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just so anybody's listening to this, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't feel like we, we get rid of Sunday mornings, but it doesn't all, you know, have to be about Sunday mornings. It's if those, if that serving discipleship is the question. Totally. I don't know if you guys are experiencing this the same way across the pond, but here, you know, there's a big like deconstruction movement. A lot of people as 6 million millennials left the church, you know, since 2016, there's a lot of people. And I actually think that really tells us something like people want to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. People want to wrestle through like, this is what I've been told, but this is the experience of these people. Like, why is there a disconnect here? People, you know, hear Jesus say, like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, like, there is this sort of, um, reconstructing. And and I think some people are, are ending up in the ditch or the sidelines in that process. And I really wrestle with one, I, I don't, I don't blame them because of sort of the witness of the church in the West wanting to deconstruct a lot of what has gotten the church there. And two, I feel a real calling for us to create place for people to do that sort of wrestling and working out their salvation and fear and trembling. I think part of what's been revealed these last few years is how our discipleship fell so short of that. And like, let me tell you what to believe. Let me tell you as the preacher, teacher, here's the core tenets. Let me tell you what this text says. And like my greatest takeaway from seminary is, oh, there's a lot of different opinions on what this text says or how you might interpret this or when you add cultural context. So even the way I'm teaching, I'm trying to approach that like, okay, let's stir the pot a little bit. You know, here's this this text or this outcome. Here's one way to look at it. Here's what another scholar says. Isn't that interesting that we should work this out with fear internally? Isn't that interesting that there's a process or a wrestling and even leaving space for the spirit uh, to work through some of that? So I think that being attentive to those desires in people is influencing even how we approach what we do on a weekend. We're trying to be more intentional about that. Yeah, and just as you say that, I see that, you know, um, from like your comments, I see that people have put with some of the things that you've put out, thoughts on Facebook and, and you know, reflections maybe to do with your service. The word I see people effectively, I suppose, we could sum up a lot of what people get with you is, is uh, thoughtful. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've gone for, my my background would be, people would say he's persuasive. I mean, I literally could sell 
you know, um, whatever whatever it is, uh, you know, <laughs> over here we say coals to Newcastle. I could, you know, sell ice to Eskimos, etc. That's that's kind of I can make a case for something. I can get people excited for it. I can get them to sign up for it, and it's persuasive. And and it, and it goes back as as well. Actually, interesting in what you were saying about the gospel of salvation. I can therefore, because I'm an evangelist at heart, I can get hands in the air. But if I can only get people, especially like you say, millennials, maybe when they were younger, they they were at a summer camp and something happened and they had this, the thrill and the friends and the music and the chills and the, and then they say that. And then, and then they're like, you know, Jesus wants to help you and change your life and, and you get your past forgiven and you've not really got much of a past yet, but you want to make sure whatever it is, is getting it forgiven and then you get a new life. Yeah. And and you know so so i I, you know i'm hearing what i think what you're saying is so important for we've got to thoughtfully help people construct what the what the and is what what is it how you know how do we work it out totally i think so i actually still have a heart for evangelism and i think there was a time that i would have approached especially kind of building church work as being way more persuasive. And some of this is just my own personal journey that I've gone through. I think that I'm, I'm beyond trying to convince people to do something that they don't want to do. <laughs> and like studying even, I'm, I'm really into like psychology and neuroscience and understanding even how transformation happens. Like I think that, that can inform how we approach discipleship in a lot of ways to, to lead to lasting durable change, you know? And some of it's probably just my own kind of journey through the wilderness of like taking apart the faith tradition that I had taken into a really hard season and then coming out with a much more real experience of Jesus in suffering and a much more durable sort of faith. I I came out with something better through that wrestling, through that challenging process. So now, I mean, it has reformed, I guess, how I view my role is like, so my job is to help create safe space for people to work through their own wrestling, for them to experience the spirit in that. And I, I'm confident that what they come out of the other side of whatever that transformation or challenge or difficult season or or wrestling um with what it means to follow Jesus my my hope is that yes to your idea to be a guide on the side instead of a sage on the stage that my creating a safe space for them to do that work is going to point them to a more durable consistent faithful journey of following Jesus over time so uh, we need persuasive people to get people in the door we need persuasive people to introduce people to Jesus and I think we need um to be thoughtful about how we let people really work out the implications of that in their lives. Launch Replant is just around the corner on October 3rd and 4th in Wigan. As a Future Church podcast listener, you can get an extra 10% discount on the already discounted summer deals when you use the promo code FUTUREChurch at checkout. Book your ticket for you and your team today at launchcatalyst.org. So you started to touch a little there, there on your own sort of journey your own path following the lord and uh when just how's your how's that worked out in your life so far you know how did you meet jesus was that you know what age or stage did that kind of happen if there was a if there was a, a moment that you can point to and then how's your calling unfolded to kind of bring you to where you are right now yes 
Uh, I, you know, I grew up in a really dysfunctional home. We went to church off and on, but by the time I was a teenager, there was a huge disconnect for me in kind of what we learned at church, what the Bible said, what I, you know, understood Jesus was calling us to and what my experience of that church community was. And so as a teenager, I left thinking like, well, these people don't actually believe what they say, or they would live differently. And um, walked away from the church. Uh, I was emancipated at 16, so moved out on my own, had to kind of care for myself from that uh, that time forward, and did, and went to school full-time, worked full-time, um, started like a pretty financially successful career really young, was helping to scale a, a franchise of restaurants. And one day, I mean, I guess this happened slowly over time, but one day I was just realized, you know, I have kind of everything that the world has to offer me that it says would fulfill me or make me whole. I made great money, partied all the time, had a new car, went shopping, you know, just all the things that you would expect would be, uh, would lead to fulfillment. And at the end of that, I still turned up empty. And so I remember on an Easter Sunday or that weekend thinking, I think people go to church on Easter. Like, maybe that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. And so there's a church across the street from where I lived. And I walked through the doors. I darkened the doors of a church on Easter Sunday. And that day, um, totally experienced the Holy Spirit and felt like, okay, like this, this might be kind of the longing in my heart for fulfillment and for what it is that I'm kind of searching for. Um, I left and I put actually that passage from Mark 8, 34 and 35 on my bathroom mirror and just every day woke up like, okay, what does it mean to lose my life and follow Jesus, to find my life in him? Like, what does that mean today? What does that mean today? And it it just slowly began to permeate my habits at the time, um, how I spent my time, over time, how I ran the business. Like we, it just started to, you know, be kind of an inbreaking of the kingdom in this restaurant. I would pray for staff. The church I worked at wanted to do hurricane relief. There had been several hurricanes in Florida that year. So I was like, I have a staff and access to food and I'll bring my kitchen staff. So they show up like cussing and smoking and hungover from the night before. And the church ladies are there like clutching their pearls, wondering what is happening here. And, but I just didn't know any better. You know, I thought, well, this is what it means to follow Jesus. Like we're going to get into the messy middle of that. And some of the Folks on my team found their way back to God. It was really cool. We started a building better people policy. Like it was changing the culture at the church. And then this church called one day and said, hey, would you, instead of building restaurants, would you come and build ministries? And so that was kind of the shift for me into church work. And I started doing middle school ministry at that time. Amazing. That's so good. And I think too, you know, as people often say to me about, oh, you were a police officer for all those years and then you were a uh, church leader and, and like, you know, how different it is. And I said, you know, there's transferable skills here. You know, there's things that at the end of the day, you end up, you're working with people and, you know, often, it, it, you know, in everything we've got, you know, people are people. And um, so, you know, have you, have you, I'm sure that they're kind of, um, you're not just, I'm not decrying this, but you're not just done it a business degree you've started you know you've led some people um uh, to order a common vision with you know and everything's easy until you get people involved <laughs> sure <laughs> you know um so i suppose you know yeah it's great to have you know to be able to 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 look at that and then and then obviously you know we want to 
say for anybody else who's listening you know the, the way church leadership is changing these days is that there's you know there's a kind of bivocational things not you know the, the call aspect here is is something that's gradual and uh, you know we're not saying the only people who are called are people who end up working for the church because you were i imagine every bit has been used by jesus when you were doing those things in many ways but we, we, we so how did that then go though so you ended up effectively you know where's where's the places i'm aware that you've been involved in various churches and you've helped to start church plants and and those kind of things so you know yeah tell us a little bit more about how that works then certainly uh i will say you know running a kitchen and leading a restaurant where people make two or three dollars an hour plus tips is a lot like leading volunteers right like they can go anywhere and do this anywhere and um leading people in that regard helped me so much in the church and um in the restaurant business, you know, we knew at the end of every day, week, month, year, kind of what the goals were, what the target was, what levers to pull to be able to reach the goals and targets. And when I started working in the church, I felt so discouraged at the lack of intentionality in our leadership and kind of felt like, you know, I do this thing every Sunday, but what's the goal here? Like, am I supposed to be reaching more students? Is it the parents I'm serving? Do we want to reach more kids or go deep with the kids that are here? You know, all of that kind of vision clarity stuff uh, was really fuzzy for me. And so, and, and I felt like what was at the bottom line was way more important in the church world than like a bigger bonus at the end of the year in the marketplace. So I, it equipped me in a lot of ways to bring those types of um, vision clarity and strategic planning ways of thinking. I don't think that they're one for one. I don't think that we can business plan in the church, but I certainly think the the stewardship that we should bring to what we do in the church is really important, whatever your role is. And so I got to create some different vision clarity and strategic planning processes that would help ministries get that clear and that specific to steward well what God had, you know, entrusted them with. I used those at the church that I was at for a while. Uh, we went to Chicago uh, for my husband to do seminary at um, Willow Creek. And so I didn't know what Willow Creek was, but one day he came home, we were dating at the time, and he came over and said, like, I got the new Willow Creek Leadership Summit DVD in the mail. And so um, we did dinner in a movie, like as a date, and that is how I experienced the, my, the leadership community or leadership summit um, and Willow Creek for the first time. I didn't know what it was. We went there for him to do seminary, and then I ended up interviewing kind of in the internship interview for him, and there was a role in their high school ministry. So I took this job, kind of my second role in ministry. I had thought before, maybe this is just for a season, and that's when it started to evolve into like, okay, this is this might be vocationally what God has for me. Um, I served at Willow Creek for about 10 years. I started in high school ministry. Then I did lots of different um, special projects and did this sort of vision clarity and strategic planning. I created the ministry planning process, helped implement it, and then build on it uh, across Willow Creek with all of our different locations, with every ministry. In that time, people would call and say, hey, how do you do this at Willow? How does this work? And so I would find myself in these conversations where I'm explaining to people what our vision is, but then also helping them realize this isn't your vision. It's not your community. It's not your context. Like what if you led your team to this part of this kind of clarity for your own unique specific context? And so people just would say, okay, will you help me do that? So I started doing coaching and consulting during that time, just bringing these processes I had created to other churches and denominations. 
And then my last several years at Willow, I led what we called section communities, which were really these kind of micro X2 communities all across the auditorium led by um, predominantly lay leaders. I mean, we paid them a stipend, but like president of a bank, <clears throat> vice principal of a school, you know, leaders in the church that we saw sort of apostolic gifting in and called them up to lead a, a section community, a community of between 100 and 350 people. And that was just really exciting time to bring that kind of missional focus to what was happening at Willow. And then when I left there, uh, my husband and I went to do revitalization work at a church and we followed a founding pastor where they're um, for about five and a half years, really just helping them reimagine again, what, what the intention of the church is, what their vision was, what discipleship looks like. And then I moved to Chicagoland area to start working at community about two and a half years ago. So that's kind of the evolution in a nutshell. There's a lot of different directions I could go from there. Okay. Well, I think out of that, which is fantastic, the a point of connection, obviously, I've got now is with where you're at, um, is in Chicago. But before that, my, you know, I did have connections with Willow Creek um, over the years. Um, I became good friends to a guy called Graham, who led Willow Creek for the UK, and uh, also with various other people um, who were involved with it in Europe. Got invited into this feels so long ago a young leaders gathering uh, to go over to be part of something in the states, and I was like blown away because I, you know, I remember hearing. Um, Bill Hybels and various people coming over to the UK. I was my church was one of the first to sign up to be part of the association that when I was leading them as an Anglican church, and and I just you know drank very deep from that well. Absolutely, you know, got a lot from it, and was you know super grateful for being part of a number of programs where I could come over, be envisioned, be equipped. I remember you know for me uh as a guy in my early 30s at the time and to be like in the same room as bill hybels john hotberg mark mittelberg um uh, and and be able to ask questions etc it was it was it was phenomenal so i'm saying all of that to say massively help you know help by willow creek want to honor everything that was that was good and positive in that and you know many friends still connected into into the ministries that have come out from that the uh i got asked to be um when they first brought the gls to the uk um they shipped me over and i got some training in how to be um the guy who would stand in front of everybody and create the experience etc and coached me on that and then i i you know when it first came to the uk it was me who was doing that. And again, I was like, wow, you know, this is very kind and generous. I'd say from all of that, uh, when when stuff happened, and you know, I remember it was one of those things a little bit like, it, I know you guys talk about when JFK died. When I first heard stuff about Bill Hybels, um, I've been in his house. I've eaten meals at, at his table. Um, and... You know, I didn't see that. I think there was one occasion, I seem to remember early on, where we were in a big room full of people, other leaders, and he. I asked him a question. I think it was to do with the Holy Spirit, but um, I, know I was basically saying about asking questions around prayer for people and how, how can you get, you know, do you have anything 
whereby people could access for themselves prayer for healing because you know the, the model was about there's like five elders or a group of elders who are available on a thursday evening for an hour or something and i was saying you got twenty thousand people how does that work and he kind of responded and i could tell he didn't like the question mm. and um and then uh, i pushed him on it a little bit because i didn't i didn't like his answer i didn't think his answer as i said i'm not sure how biblical that is yeah really and um and then he said, uh, well, how many people have you got coming to your church? And I was like, did you just play that card? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, we've got about 300 coming. And he said, well, there you go. And I said, yeah, but 18 months ago, we had 200. Mm-hmm. You know? And... Uh, but but so then when you know started tracking back on that i mean i i i i'm again lots of positives all around it but i think each of us has our own pressure points and maybe more than learning what were bills were i need to look in the mirror and think what are mine when anybody else on here listening to this kind of stuff these things are you know when, when we I, i'm not looking here for some what went wrong at mars hill post-mortem but i'm aware this stuff became real for you mm-hmm. uh in, in, in etc and i don't know if this was some of the pain you were talking about i'm sure there's other things too but but we're you know you you were there when seismic stuff was taking place in probably one of the the most well-known churches in the whole of the western world and and literally as i I was one of the ones who was like what so um you know how what kind of um you know how how was that kind of journey as far as you were concerned yeah uh my last like three three and a half years working there i worked directly for bill and so it was definitely some of the most transformational you know high high bar high challenge high candor lots of feedback lots of coaching and i'm i'm really grateful for that it helped me become a better leader, um, a better person in a lot of ways. And, you know, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I really appreciate truth. Truth is like a love language. So there's a lot that I appreciated about that season, but there were also those same types of encounters that at the end of the day, I think all of kind of what has been revealed there has a lot to do with power, um, and even control, but, um, the way that that played out with women and men was different. And so some of my male colleagues, so, so there were, inappropriate comments, inappropriate invitations, inappropriate. What I've learned since then is actually called like predatory grooming behavior. And that, that kind of behavior that I think that was revealed, it doesn't, it doesn't happen quickly. It happens really slowly over time. Sort of everybody in the culture is indoctrinated in some way, is groomed in some way to kind of the predator's behavior. But Uh, eventually those things just got so uncomfortable that I was like, you know, I rationalized it for a long time. Maybe this is generational. Maybe he thinks this is okay to say these things to me. And I just do not perceive it that way. Maybe I'm sensitive, you know, or maybe, maybe he thinks I'm like his daughter. We're of similar ages you know, um, I, there were, you know, delete conversations that he wanted to have over email. I'm like, well, I've never worked for a pastor who advised presidents before. So maybe this is normal in his circle, you know, even though it feels a little weird. And, but over time, those weird things just kind of grew and got more uncomfortable. And so I decided I just, I needed to not work for him anymore. Um, 
And I I didn't know at the time that there were other women that had experienced this kind of stuff. And I didn't know how my male colleagues, I mean, I had heard stories, you know, of of him powering up or yelling and screaming or things like that, that other people experienced. And I never experienced that side of Bill. So um, I just never imagined, I didn't know what predatory grooming behavior was at the time. I never imagined how broad it was. I just thought like, okay, there's just some things that are a little bit inappropriate here. I need to, to remove myself. I stepped into a different role and did actually just kind of contract coaching and consulting with them at that point. But then um, as I transitioned roles, I went to a lot of the Willow Creek Association type of things and had a different encounter with Bill there that was just even more inappropriate. And so at this point, I'm like, okay, I have to do some work around here. This, I can't rationalize this anymore. I started going to my counselor talking about these things, that's when I learned kind of the predatory grooming thing. And that's when I really felt like, okay, I have some responsibility in here to speak up. At this point, I had moved. I was at this other church. I was still working there doing contract coaching and consulting. I could have just quit and walked away. Uh, but I felt like if I do that, understanding what my experience is, if Bill ends up treating other women this way or other women find themselves in positions that they feel like they can't say no, because that's a reality with a a powerful leader like that, then I felt like I would be responsible in the harm done to them. I would be complicit in it by not speaking up. And so I spoke up imagining that it would be like, oh, thank you so much. We're going to walk in accountability with him. You know, I I just, I had no clue uh, what I was stepping into by doing that. Um, it ended up being just one of the most devastating experiences I've ever walked through. How the church responded to me, um, how they treated me, uh, even um, like a, an investigator that they got involved in the process who, you know, called me a liar and told me I was being dramatic and I was making it up. And and the things that were said about me as kind of why I would do this, motivators, just every bit of kind of trauma and church trauma and betrayal, really from these people that I had worked with for more than 10 years at this point. And so that was a catalyst for like a pretty significant wilderness season that I walked through. And so a majority of that happened before kind of the public story. And then all of these other stories of women. And, you know, I hold countless stories of women um, that, that didn't or couldn't say no to Bill that will never be shared publicly, but but the the abuse of power is the consistent theme, whether it's men or women. I don't even think that this kind of stuff is about sex. It really is about power at the end of the day. And we could get into all sorts of stuff about um, imposter syndrome and and sort of what I think leads to this. Like, I'm not sure that people were ever meant to be commoditized or stand on platforms or consumed or objectified. And I think, you know, there's ways that that as leaders our personhood gets kind of removed and, and, and platform can take over. And so there's a lot, there was a lot happening. I think there was a lot unhealed even in Bill and he has shared some of those stories over the years. So that has put me on a journey of wanting to be really aware of my own childhood trauma and family of origin wounds. And, you know, that's kind of the journey I would even say discipleship wise for all of us, all of that to say, yes, that season really forced me into, I just kept feeling like I got my legs knocked out from under me, like the betrayal from these people, from this church that I loved and cared about and 
uh, that set me on a journey of, of kind of wandering through the wilderness and maybe deconstructing a lot of my own experience of what is the church and what is actually, what is leadership and what is the purpose of what it is we're trying to do. And, and so in some ways I'm still on that journey, but that that's kind of that painful season that you had asked about initially. Hey, thank you. I, I just want to start off by saying, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that you've gone through that. And uh, thank you for being so vulnerable and courageous in in bringing that um you know but being able to share it with me but also recognizing that there's other people and that you know that that, that um two corinthians one um says that you know the, the, the praise be to the god of father of our lord and savior jesus christ the god of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles mm-hmm. so that we'll be able to comfort others Sure. We're going through any kind of trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. And so I want to pray for you. You'll continue to get that comfort from the Lord um, for that. And, you know, for all the ways in which, uh, you know, that's just not right. And I'm saying that, you know, as a as a leader, as a dad, as a granddad, as somebody, you know, again, who, who, doesn't, who certainly hasn't always got it right, you know, and I think we've got to keep on learning how to be, um with you know the the kind of you know I've, I've spoken as well on here at different points with Danielle Strickland and you know learned a lot from her of how men and women can work well together um you know scripture says now there's no male or female mm-hmm. um you know we're all born in Christ and that's the great biblical picture but the reality is you know, we work alongside each other for Jesus and um you know so sort of I suppose coming out of that and I do point to the book, um, A Church Called Tove, for anybody who's listening, by Scott McKnight and Laura uh, Barringer, forming a goodness culture that reduces, resists abuses of power and promotes healing as a key resource for leaders to, to read. It's got this, something of the story of, of Willow Creek that we've already alluded to here and the lessons that can be learned from that, particularly around... I think it's usually well-meaning people, but who want to protect the leader and protect the vision and protect the culture, but don't realize that actually at the same time they're destroying it by the way in which they're going about it. And, um, and, and, you know, there's, there's, these are structural issues. They're culture issues. They are collusion issues whereby as you said that you know i've seen this over the years I, one one thing that i've been aware of i think more than many in, in i went i did a church safeguarding training a little while ago as, as part of that and and um and I, I said to the people who were doing the teaching having been in the police for 10 years i'll i'll say it i know there's bad people there are bad people and i'm not saying they started out but ultimately, if you keep doing bad stuff, mm-hmm. I'm treating you like you're bad people, and I'm going to protect me, me and mine from you, and I'm going to put stuff around you so you don't get to keep on doing that. Mm-hmm. And I have no problem with 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 you know ultimately protecting people from people who want to abuse power mm-hmm. or position. Or, or in any other way to be able to, you know, make people who are in various ways, everybody's vulnerable, make 
they're more vulnerable. Um, so I came in with my eyes wide open to that. I'm very often found in the church that the church is the least wide open to those things. We never want to say anybody's bad. Actually, we'll find all kinds of different ways around it to say, you know, you can say, oh, yeah, no, I understand, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and ultimately, yeah, there's, there, there is that. But at the same time, I love Henry Cloud. One of the things he talks about, and again, check this out on YouTube, just Google uh, the wise, the foolish, and the evil. Mm-hmm. And he says, wise people add to their learning. So I can tell you something. If you're wise, you're going to learn from it. And you're going to do something different as a result of that. Fools, in Proverbs, fools repeat their folly. So you're going to keep on coming back and saying, why are we still having this conversation? Why are we having this conversation again about this person and these, this pattern? And then evil people, um, he says, you can protect yourself from an evil person. And ultimately, it's okay to do that. And I believe, you know, scriptures it time and time again, we can expose them. So you've done a brave thing in doing that. But you're looking, you know, you say, well, you couldn't do that. But you look in scripture, Paul names and shames. He literally, he he goes through and he says, you got this guy in your church. This is what he's like. You need to watch out for him. You need to, you need to withdraw from that. And he's like, you don't give that guy any more power. Don't give them any more place. And, and I figure, you know, this is the job of leaders too. If we're going to care for the sheep, we have to look out. There's snakes, there's wolves. And ultimately that's part of our shepherding job too. So, uh, sorry, I've gone off on a little preach there, but I think you, your story gets me, it touches for me in, in a place that I've just seen so often over the years. People, again, that I've always been amazed at, that I'm kind of go, really? And we've just seen it so much. And again, we've got to learn the hard way, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But what kind of things do you think from from what you've seen and also from um, you know the the women that you connected to, the the, the um, other other things we've seen. You know we could name places and people, but you know people probably get to know those anyway. You know, and again, not from a position of because I'm I'm I always get everything right, but it's to help me as a as now a a guy in his fifties who is you know leading a church. You know what what kind of things do I, do I have to watch for, and what's what's good practice? What in like this says, what's a church called Tove? What's going to form a goodness culture? Not just a oh great, we got lot, we got more people here last Sunday than we did last Sunday, therefore we're successful. We got some more money in the plates. We got some more whatever. Those have been the the benchmarks of church. And even now in our world, a lot of the stuff I'm involved with now it's multiplication, and we can we can say oh we planted. 50 churches and all that. And the question is, all right, any goodness? You know, was, 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 are they good? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in this sense, yeah. you know, rather because, you know, weeds multiply really fast and you can get lots of them. It's like, what? So how do we protect and, and what the Lord's doing so that it does become worth growing and multiplying? What you, what's your, yeah. again, lessons maybe that you've learned the hard way that you could pass on to us with that? Yeah. Uh, I love that question of just what are we multiplying? Because at the end of the day, if we are if we are engaged in multiplication, if we're reproducing churches, but they are not churches, churches that share the culture of the kingdom of God, if they're not goodness culture communities, then are we really multiplying the kingdom of God? Like, Or is this just a great entity with a great kind of scaling business plan? I think we have to be ruthlessly honest about what we are multiplying And in a lot of ways, you know, this has redefined for me what leadership is. Um, 
we, I think, had well-intentioned reasons for wanting to create a leadership culture and bring in some of the best leaders in the world to learn from. And But leadership in the kingdom of God is different than how the world is going to approach leadership. And actually, in the church world, how we do what we do matters as much, if not more, than what it is that we do. And so you can have an entity or an organization that's going up and to the right but it's leaving a trail of bodies behind it. And to call that the kingdom of God, I mean, that's a stretch, right? And so it's just made me so much more attentive. And maybe this goes back to my um, my desire to not persuade people anymore, because I just see that has a shorter runway than calling, inviting, challenging people into kind of their own journey, um, being attentive to the how. Are we creating safe spaces? Are we listening to a multitude of voices or just the loudest white guy in the room? You know, who are we asking for the perspective of the marginalized? Are we holding empathy for the outcomes of our decisions? You know, even during COVID, when we were trying to make decisions as a church about how to engage again and again and again, I just kept asking, who are we centering in making these decisions? Because we could center the health, healthy middle-class you know, sort of white family, or I actually think the text has a lot to say about caring for the vulnerable among us. And so if the decisions that we make have harmful implications for the vulnerable among us, then who are we centering in these conversations? I think it was so, so much just a mirror back to us about the fruit of what it is that we're doing. And so to your point, I think one of the things that we could be reimagining is what is success within our organizations? What is the actual goal here? here. And, you know, I've been asking churches that for years in my coaching and consulting work, because if it's to get a thousand people here, like you could give away iPads and get a thousand people, right? Like, and and I'm not saying that growth is bad at all, but how we do what we do matters as much as what we do. And so reimagining some of those guideposts for success uh, or what it is that we're actually trying to move forward being really attentive to culture and to what kind of culture we're cultivating. I think leaders can ask themselves the question, who is giving me feedback? Is anybody around me giving me feedback? Who who will tell me the truth or give me feedback, whether it's about a message or a decision that's made? Um, am I defensive when I receive feedback? You know, like these are just kind of internal interrogation questions that I think are really important. And I, I I just feel like a little bit prompted to tell a story here quickly. Um, when I started in this role, I was, uh, I think this goes to redefining what we imagine leadership to be, right? Um, sitting around with my leadership team, just talking about a decision that we needed to make coming into the fall. And I had some grand plans of things I hoped we could do or accomplish, but I needed to kind of check in with them and understand what our capacity was and if this was even realistic. And my grand plans got reduced a little bit after that conversation with the lead team, but I really did want their their buy-in and their energy on this um, on this decision. And after the meeting, one of the guys on my team came up to me and said, you know, I would have respected you a lot more as a leader if you would have just said, nope, we're doing it. This is what we're doing. This is the grand plan. This, If you would have just like pushed us through, I would have respected you more as a leader. And I was grateful for that feedback. But then I said to him, like, I, I think that you might need to reimagine how you view what leadership is. Because that sounds a lot like patriarchy. Like, this is the thing and we're going to do it every bit. And I could lead that way. I actually could be very highly directive in my leadership and in my communication. But when I say I want input from a multitude of voices and perspectives in this leadership team, 
I actually mean it. Like I'm not showing up to that meeting trying to convince you guys that my agenda is what's right. I actually want your input and I don't want to kill the team forcing them to do this thing that I want to do because I got the long game in mind, right? And that nobody's going to be better for that on the other side of this if it's not sustainable what it is I'm asking you to do. And so to him, it was just like, wait, what? That's leadership? Like to gather the right voices and create safe space to wrestle and come to an outcome. It's not always consensus. There are times I need to make a decision, but I think that's maybe in just a microcosm of how some of these shifts of maybe what I imagined leadership to be in the church 10 years ago, and now what I'm imagining leadership to be in God's kingdom are quite different. And it's a journey. I'm still on that journey of like decolonizing my mind of what I imagine it means to to be a leader, to be effective, to bring people along in what it is that we're doing in the church. Thanks for listening to the Future Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, listen back with your team and share it. Further thoughts and resources can be found at anthonydelaney.com.